This show is supported by State Farm. You have insurance for your home, your health, and your car. Why don't you have insurance for your small business? So many small business owners think they don't need or don't even know about small business insurance. Protecting a source of revenue is one thing, but so is protecting all of your hard work and your team members. State Farm agents are all small business owners too, so they know how to help small business owners choose personalized policies that fit their budgets. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey everyone, CJ here. Welcome to episode 88 of the Dangerous History Podcast. Today I'm very happy to share with you a recent conversation I had with historian Thaddeus Russell, who is a very interesting guy with a lot of unorthodox views on history, something that of course I always appreciate and think you will too. In fact, I've been a fan of Thad's book, A Renegade History of the United States, since it was first published, I think about five years ago. So it's very cool to have him on the show. But before we jump to that, I do have a Patreon shout out for Francesc or Francesc, not exactly sure how to pronounce it. But either way, thank you very, very much for becoming a supporter of this show over at patreon.com slash profcj. I hope more of you will go ahead and take that step of supporting the Dangerous History podcast at a set pledge per episode. And if you pledge at least $1 per episode, you will have access to special bonus shows, special bonus episodes that I put there about every month to month and a half. So please consider supporting the show, patreon.com slash profcj, and also profcj.org slash donate for other ways to help out the show. So anyway, for those of you who don't already know who he is, Thaddeus Russell is a historian and a cultural critic and the author of A Renegade History of the United States. He holds a Ph.D. from Columbia University and currently teaches American history at Occidental College. Previously, he's taught at places including Columbia University, Barnard College, and several others. He's published articles in a variety of scholarly and popular venues and has also appeared on a bunch of television venues and probably more podcasts than you can count as well. So without further ado, I present to you my recent conversation with Thaddeus Russell. All right, Thaddeus Russell, thanks for coming on the Dangerous History Podcast today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really cool to talk to you. Um, I've been a, a fan of yours ever since Renegade History of the United States came out. Great. I'm sure, I, I know for certain some of my listeners are familiar with you, but probably not all of them are. So if you wouldn't mind kind of just the the quick version of sort of your background and how you got to uh, your, your current situation in the historical profession. <laughs> um, it's a fairly indirect way to get there. I, you know, I was born in Berkeley, California, uh, grew up there in the seventies and eighties. And of course it was, you know, a hotbed of radicalism. And my parents were radicals. They were revolutionary socialists and we lived near the black Panthers national headquarters. And of course there were lots of hippies around and beatniks and bohemians and gays and lesbians and, um, lots of countercultural people. So that was kind of the, the milieu of my childhood. And, um, but I was a terrible student and I, in fact, hated history courses. And I, I think I got, I never got more than a C in a history class in high school. 
Uh, partly because my parents were terrible parents and partly just because school was awful and I was in public schools and, you know, public schools are, in my view, just containers. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, but uh, I ended up going to a, um, a small hippie college in Ohio called Antioch College, uh, which was a very, very funky, silly place in a lot of ways, but actually was great for me because it just um, – it had few rules. Uh, it was very anarchistic and that's what I needed. And I had, you know, small classes and I got to talk to my professors who took me seriously as an intellectual. And I would literally sit on the floor in the stacks in the library and pull books off the shelves of the philosophy section and, uh, read them and got very turned on by philosophy at first and then moved into history because I realized that it was easiest to, the best way to win an argument was uh through um with historical evidence so i by the end of my college career i was a history and philosophy major but clearly had moved pretty firmly into uh us history as a as a vocation and then uh took a couple of years off after after college and then managed to get into columbia uh the history program at columbia mostly because they were accepting all their, almost not all, but most of their applicants at that time. <laughs> and uh, they would accept a whole lot, large number of people. It's the only major history program that did this and give most of them no money, no fellowships. And then they would sort of force that group to compete in the first year. And then the, the winner of that competition got a fellowship, which was me. So I, so, so, so basically you won the hunger games. huh? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, and so that was, you know, obviously a turning point for me in my life and my career. Um, and I, I actually had some bumps in the road after that, which had nothing to do with me or my performance. It was just, there was a, some budget cuts in the department, but anyway, I, I managed to hang on at Columbia with essentially a full ride after that and, um, did well, did well enough. And, but along the way, you know, I started out given my background and who my parents were being typical lefty socialist, social historian wanting to basically win social justice through the writing of history, finding, finding the right heroes in history and then publicizing them through my work, which is what most of them essentially are up to. So, um, but once I got to New York and was kind of in that, that milieu of the very hardcore, you know, New York left, um, and the academic left at Columbia, I just found that they weren't very appealing people to me and the culture was not at all appealing to me. And, uh, I was just disgruntled. I didn't quite understand why, what I didn't like about it, but I knew that I loved, I knew that I loved pleasure and I knew that I loved freedom and I knew that I loved popular culture and they didn't like any of those things. <laughs> uh, and that kind of pushed me away. Um, but I started to put ideas around those feelings sort of late in my graduate career, sort of during the writing of my dissertation. Uh, and by the time I was done, I uh, had moved toward an embrace of the market and a distaste for statism. I still don't consider myself a libertarian and most libertarians 
don't consider me to be a libertarian either, but I was obviously moving in that direction at least. Holding on to a lot of left-wing ideas and sensibilities though. Um, and the people of Columbia, I began to develop my ideas that became renegade history toward the end of my graduate career there. And they, they started to sniff them out, the faculty there at that point, and just didn't know what to do with me. Um, but good news was that across the street at Barnard College, which is the women's college affiliated with Columbia, the people there didn't know what I was up to as a scholar. They just heard that I was a good teacher and they needed a teacher at one point in 2001. And so they hired me as an adjunct and I did very well. And they ended up giving me a, a full-time contingent contract. So I taught there for five years full-time at Barnard and they <laughs> they actually gave me, and this is a very important moment in my career, they gave me the the uh, Intro to American History survey course, big lecture course, which was required not just for Barnard history majors, but for all Columbia history majors. So I had about almost 200 kids in that class over about three year period and, you know, taught, taught a broad swath of Columbia students and Barnard students, kind of the basic <laughs> or a, a basic uh, U.S. history narrative, which, of course, was became I realized later that really was the the skeleton of renegade history of the United States. I was developing these arguments that showed up in that book later. Um, the faculty didn't know what I was teaching because they don't they don't they don't sit in on any people's classes, um, and so they allowed me to do it. And then what happened was, though, um, in my fourth year at Barnard, a a full tenure track position in exactly what I was teaching came open. And because my classes were increasing dramatically and I was considered to be a good teacher, people thought I was a shoe-in for that job. Uh, <laughs> so I applied for it. And, but that, of course, required me giving a job talk, a lecture on my work to the, to the assembled faculty from Columbia and Barnard. And the talk I gave is um, it's essentially the chapter in, in Renegade on the civil rights movement. Um, became that. Uh, half of them thought it was brilliant and loved it and thought I was amazing. And half of them thought I was a criminal <laughs> and had, and had no place in, in academia. I mean, they actually said that they, several of them wrote emails to the search committee chair and said that I, what I wrote was, or what I said in the, in my job talk was inappropriate and dangerous and really had no place in academia. Um, we can talk about the content of my talk, which is the chapter on civil rights, but it was a lot. I mean, I was much of it was on black sexuality and its conflict with the civil rights leadership in the fifties and sixties. And I actually had a, a friend of mine who was a colleague tell me later after I got denied the job that quote, we are not allowed to discuss black libido. Um, <laughs> and that was, that was a major reason I didn't get the job. The another one was that they wanted, I was a white guy and they really were desperate for diversity and, a black woman applied for the job who didn't even teach in American. It was actually an American studies job. She doesn't even, doesn't even do American studies. She does econometrics, <laughs> um, but they were going to give her the job anyway, just because she was a black woman. So it was a mix, but I got, I got pretty trashed in terms of my work and my politics by the, by the faculty, by some of the, by sort of key members of the faculty there. Um, so I thought my career was over. At that moment, I really, I really did. I didn't, I didn't think, you know, the job market was terrible at the time. Still, is even worse now, but it was terrible then. And 
I just didn't think I had a place in that world. Uh, I didn't think I could get a full-time job. Uh, so, but I had some friends in publishing in New York and I just, I don't know, I was walking around Central Park one day thinking, what the hell am I going to do? And I said, well, I have these lectures, you know, um, spanning U.S. history from the Civil War to the present, you know, that say some different things that the kids seem to like. Maybe it could become a book. And I managed to put together some connections in publishing, got an agent, and very quickly actually got a, a very good deal for what became a renegade history of the United States. And then um, basically I've been uh, since then I've been doing that. I've been writing books, publicizing the book, teaching part-time at three different schools now, um, and sort of trying to establish a career as a, as a public independent, independent public intellectual. So I'm still, I still have one foot in academia. I teach at Occidental college now. Um, but I do, I spend at least half my time doing sort of public intellectual stuff, like writing articles and books and giving talks and doing podcast interviews. So here I am. All right. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things, you know, I, I enjoy people like you or Daniele Bellelli, those sorts of people who are, you know, one, one foot in academia, but definitely not, right. not really part of it. Because, you know, I, I have sort of a similar reaction to a lot of standard academia that that you do of they're they're just no fun to be around they're actually um many of them certainly not all but many of them are just like surprisingly close-minded for people who have this reputation right. of being these you know liberal and kind of the big sense of the word minded individuals absolutely yeah no i i um i i've said recently you may have seen this on twitter i said um something like you can You'll see more. You'll see more intellectual debate in five minutes on Twitter than you will in four years in college. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, all right. So I've heard you refer to yourself and and the focus of your work uh, primarily as a cultural historian. So I'm curious, how would you define that term? Well, it's interesting um, because I started out as sort of an anti-cultural historian. <laughs> I um, was basically a Marxist of some kind kind of in college and early in graduate school. And uh, I uh, was very intrigued by this Marxist idea of the base superstructure model. Um, Marx, although there's, of course, a massive debate about what he actually meant, but a lot of people interpreted his his words on this as meaning that there's a base and a superstructure in a society. The base is the economic uh, workings, the economic structures of a society. Um, and that's where, that's where history really emanates from. That's where historical change comes from. And the superstructure overlays that or, or also emanates from the economic base. And the superstructure consists of, uh, things like political institutions and culture. Um, and that is sort of ephemeral. Um, but it, it is largely determined in the sort of classic Marxist sense. It is determined by the base. So economics creates the ideas of a time. So that was very uh, popular among a lot of people I knew, and I, I was quite intrigued by it. Um, and I thought a lot about it, and um, I eventually came to believe just the opposite, <laughs> that history is actually determined by ideas. Um, that historical change is determined by ideas, culture, broadly speaking. So 
Um, I then, and this is sort of about midway through graduate school, I then started to look at the ways in which ideas have changed over time and the ways in which, most importantly, institutional change has actually fall and economic change has actually followed changes in ideas. Um, and I'm wholly convinced of that. Uh, I think Marx was completely wrong, or at least certain Marxists were completely wrong about that. Um, <clears throat> so that doesn't mean that uh, institutions and economics are unimportant. Um, I just don't think that they that they are independent, and I don't think that they independently determine historical change. So, so yeah, go ahead. If I could just jump in with a, with a follow-up on, on what you just said. So would you then reverse it, and would you then say that that culture – kind of creates what the Marxists would call the base, the sort of yes. property relations? Yes, exactly. I, re- I, re- I, uh, I reverse it. Exactly. So could, could you just elaborate a little bit more on that? Um, well, I mean, so, so I have a chapter in Renegade History on <clears throat> the consumer revolution of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And the argument is that, um, that there would have been no products there, there would be no products produced were there not desire for them. Um, <clears throat> that the um, that the market seeks demand, producers seek demand, um, and that means that if if we had not if we had not broken through, if Americans had not broken through the sort of the puritanical proscription against uh, pleasure, individual pleasure, and leisure and luxury there would have been no consumer revolution. There would have been no consumer economy. We would still be, we would still be producing things only that, you know, uh, make perhaps bridges and buildings and, uh, warships, but there would have been, <clears throat> there would have been no attempt to meet that particular demand. So that demand arose from ideas or cultural changes. Uh, and then the market followed and the economic base followed that as well. This show is supported by state farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. It's important to protect not only your business, but yourself as a business owner and all current and future team members. State Farm agents know what it takes to run and protect a small business because State Farm agents are all small business owners and they live and work in your community. So they're deeply attuned to what's happening with other small businesses in your market. If you have a small business and are interested in making sure you're protected, reach out to your local State Farm agent to learn more about what you need. They'll help you find the right policy at the right price for your business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Okay, that, that that's very interesting. I, I've come across a similar argument in a few other places, and um, you know, I kind of go, I kind of go back and forth on that. Honestly, I'm I'm not sure what side I come down on. Well, I mean, if you look at, <laughs> so I was making an intervention not so much against the Marxist model, but against the idea that advertisers and capitalists uh, create desires and create needs in consumers' right. minds. That's what I was more directly attacking, but it's 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 related. Um, <clears throat> Marxist historians love to talk about, and Marxist social scientists love to talk about how advertising creates desires in people's minds, right? Um, and I think that's <laughs> problematic in a bunch of ways. 
but it also just doesn't it just doesn't hold up if you look at sort of the the sort of progression of history and the progression of particular industries. Um, so, <clears throat> is on, is on, of course, no one had in mind <clears throat> in 1990, um, no, there was no one, as far as I know, certainly no consumers, ordinary consumers had in mind a, a telephone that was also a computer um, that could search all the information in the world uh, on it, right? Um, you know, that was also beautiful. Steve, so Steve Jobs and his people certainly came up with the, the specific idea of an iPhone or a smartphone. But what he was doing was was attempting to meet the needs or desires, pre-existing desires of consumers. He knew that people wanted to have something like that. He wanted that people wanted all the features that went into an iPhone. They just never conceived of it in that particular package. Um, <clears throat> if they had not wanted those things, the iPhone wouldn't exist. The iPhone may have been created, but it wouldn't have been. Uh, it wouldn't have been the iPhone. It wouldn't have been, you know, uh, significant histor. It would not have been significant historically, right? Whereas it's tremendously significant historically because people wanted those things already. Yeah, when I first read Renegade History, when it first came out, that that section where you talk about basically consumer sovereignty and the consumer revolution. Uh, I just couldn't – it kind of like hit me on the head when you mentioned all the examples of right. products that have been just insanely advertised. I mean massive amounts of resources right. yeah, so dumped if, into advertising and they failed. Yeah, there's a whole – you know, it's it, this is in every industry, right? I mean um, there, sure. there's some more, more famous ones. Um, you know, Hollywood is the most obvious, example, yeah. right? I mean and I sort of – I've – <clears throat> I was married. I was uh, related for a while by marriage to a, a pretty big Hollywood executive, and and she spent all of her time uh, trying to figure out what we wanted to watch, what meaning the consumers wanted to watch. And if you spend any time in Hollywood, you know that that's what they do. I mean, they do they do all this market research, they do all these test screenings, they do polling, they do surveys, they study what has been popular in the past to determine what kinds of movies to make in the future. And something like 90% of movies lose money. <laughs> um, you know, and I'm talking about Hollywood movies, big studio movies that are heavily, heavily marketed, right? And, and we can all think of numerous examples of heavily marketed movies that failed at the box office, right? Yeah, including movies that on paper should have been great because they had great actors right. and they had a big budget and they had, you know, all kinds of talented people working for sure. it. But. Yeah, everyone can name probably 10 off the top of their head, right? Movies mm -hmm. like yeah. Um, so that tells me that advertisers actually have very little power uh, over our psyches, um, that we actually determine our, ourselves largely what we want to see. Now, that doesn't mean we have always the specific ideas, of course, right? We didn't, <clears throat> we didn't know that, I don't know, Batman Returns or whatever, you know, uh, that we wanted that particular specific product, but we wanted the components within it, you know, the particular forms of entertainment, the particular kind of acting, particular kind of costumes, whatever it is, right? And Hollywood just sort of kept searching, 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 putting combinations, putting combinations together, and finally found the thing that we wanted. Um, so it's a discovery of us and our desires rather than a creation of them for us. So you would describe yourself as, as being in favor of the free market then, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 
but but you <laughs> would not describe yourself as a libertarian. I'm I'm just curious as to the rationale. Yeah. Well, so um, it's kind of oh boy, and this gets very weedy. But I, I um, you know, there are certain libertarians I'm very very close to ideologically, and they tend to describe themselves as left libertarians. Um, I. The one, the one major difference. Well, there's several major differences. I guess the one that we're kind of heading toward here in this conversation is that um, even though I am pro-market and I believe that free markets are best for the people, the working class, and consumers generally, generally, and overall, unlike nearly all the libertarians, I am also a. Um, I'm keenly aware of the difficulties the pain, the displeasure, the um, suffering really that is brought by free market economics, that it's not just all, it's not all just sort of the, an Ayn Rand utopia um, that, you know, as you know, from my book, I mean, there's a lot in it on working class resistance to capitalism or industrial discipline within capitalism. That <clears throat> capitalism, what, what libertarians I think need to read is uh, Daniel Bell's essay, The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism, to fully understand this. And this is really where my, my critique is. So I think Bell has the best, I think this is by far the best critique of capitalism. And it just makes sense to me. It sort of changed my, my whole way of viewing it when I read it. Um, <clears throat> and Bell's argument is that capitalism is is contradictory in the cultures that it creates. Um, and in its, uh, yeah. So on the one hand, it is puritanical in that it demands or requires tremendous self-discipline <clears throat> to work in a factory or in a cubicle all day long, five or six days a week requires tremendous asceticism. It requires a tremendous rejection or renunciation of one's own individual pleasures and freedoms, right? Um, <clears throat> and that goes even for the managers of those enterprises. Um, <clears throat> you know, very few people really want to, when they wake up in the morning, want to go manage a factory or work in a factory, you know, that, and they'd rather, there are many, many other things we'd rather be doing than being in that place and doing that, those tasks. <clears throat> so that, for me, sucks. Uh, libertarians, on the other hand, tend to sort of ignore that or simply say, well, you can just leave your job. You can go get another job. Um, and that's not always the case, for one thing. Um, state intervention in the economy since the dawn of capitalism has given tremendous advantages to particular capitalists and has essentially created semi-monopolies or total monopolies for capitalists in certain areas. I mean, by granting land rights, property rights, by protecting property rights, by building roads to their factories or to their stores, et cetera, et cetera. And so it, they have actually reduced the number of available options for workers, right? So if the Walmart, there's a wall, you know, think of like, you know, the Walmarts in the Arizona desert, right? Where there's nothing around. Um, the state built the roads to that Walmart, right? Which made it possible to exist. Um, how many options do workers have uh, in that area, right? They, they pretty much only have Walmart. So libertarians tend to overlook that. Um, and um, so I, I champion resistant working workers' resistance to industrial discipline, at the shop floor level, which libertarians are generally loath to do. 
So that's a big difference. Um, so, but then the other half of Bill's thesis is that capitalism, while it is puritanical and highly disciplinary, is simultaneously, ironically, and really hilariously hedonistic, right? It produces all these things that are just the opposite of Puritanism or antagonistic to Puritanism that appeal directly to our basest desires, right? <clears throat> so people who are working in cubicles uh, in the San Fernando Valley as we speak, uh, eight or nine or ten hours a day, five or six days a week, are producing pornography, which is one of the largest industries in the United States. Um, it's larger than than the automobile industry. <laughs> yeah, what what percentage of the internet is just pornography? Isn't it like eighty percent or something it's like massive, that? Massive, massive. But I, I do know that. I know that, uh, or at least I heard that or saw that recently that the annual uh, gross revenues for pornography in the United States is larger than the U.S. automobile industry's revenues. Um, and I believe it's larger than Hollywood's revenues too. Uh, certainly, Hollywood, but every, everyone knows it is absolutely massive, right? Um, but the you know the people who are making the porn, besides and even including the actors, I mean they they wouldn't they would much rather be doing other things. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not just a party making pornography. You know, it's these are big buildings with cubicles in them and people sitting at typewriter at a, at a, in front of computers on keyboards all day long. So it's an it's this amazing contradiction, right? That cap- and of course, there are many other industries, not just porn. But every industry, almost every industry, does this. Certainly, every industry that's in the consumer market, right? You know, Jack Daniels is a massive multinational corporation um, that has you know <clears throat> huge office buildings, and again, people sitting at typewriter or at computers and people working in the distillery, you know, sweeping floors or mopping floors or I don't know, whatever they do. I mean, that's mostly going to be drudgery, I'm sure. And they'd all, most of them would rather be doing something else, right? So they're forced, they have to force themselves, they have to discipline themselves just to go to work all day and to stay there all day, right? Um, but what they're producing is booze. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's one of the great anti-puritanical solvents <laughs> there is right um so you know it's this it's this fascinating contradiction um so i love that part of capitalism and i embrace it um but i hate the disciplinary part i hate i hate work <laughs> for the most part and i'm actually lucky i mean i get most of the work i do is actually you know i'm very rare i get to mostly do what i want to do in terms of work but i'd still most often rather do other things than than you know, I don't know, write an article or write a paper. Um, you know, I can always, I can almost always think of something I'd rather be doing. <laughs> you know, I have to say, based on my familiarity with your work, when I picture your daily life, it's like the Wolf of Wall Street of history. <laughs> is is that accurate, or is or is that just... my daily life? <laughs> no, my daily life, unfortunately, is pretty pedestrian uh, and bourgeois and not terribly glamorous. I mean, you know, I've, <laughs> I've done more sort of appearances on TV and podcasts and the radio than most historians have. Um, but it's not that glamorous. I mean, I mostly spent, I'm most of my time is spent doing what everyone else does in academia. I read books and I write and I teach in a classroom with 16 kids in it and I grade papers, you know, that's, a, that's nearly all of what I do. <laughs> and do you get lots of uh, wonderful waste of time meetings too? Uh, well, fortunately, since I'm an adjunct, no, I don't have oh, okay. meetings to go to. Um, 
my, you know, my work is the Wolf of Wall Street for sure. Uh, yeah, the argument yeah. is the Wolf of Wall Street, uh, but not my life. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I was, I was just wondering because you know, in in my head, when I'm when I'm reading, you know, the history of of prostitutes and junkies and all this all this fun stuff, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I, you know, this this has to be the one historian who's like, you know, well, doing lines of coke in between. And, Noel, and, I mean, I so I, I mean, I'm I'm not asking for your for your life's confession. That's all right. Well, I don't even I don't even drink anymore. I used to drink too much, um, but I don't I don't drink at all now. I um I am divorced, but I live with uh, my girlfriend. We're essentially married. Um, and I have a son, you know, so I'm, I'm I basically just a husband and a father who doesn't drink and, um, goes to the gym. <laughs> I'm sorry to okay, say, but, 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 but your heart, your heart's still with the, uh, yeah, yeah. your heart's still with the troublemakers. Sure. Absolutely. Obviously. And I mean, I used to be, and I'm also 50 years old, so I mean, it's, it's it's harder to be a renegade now, but um, yeah, I'm only in my mid thirties, and I have to say, it's a lot harder to get up in the morning if I've had a crazy night than it used to be ten or fifteen years yeah. ago. So I, I used to certainly be a little more renegade in my life, but not so much. On the issue of puritanism, and and I like how you know you sort of spell out that that kind of schizophrenia in American culture of, of puritanism versus hedonism. <clears throat> how do you think that puritanism? I mean, it really was only the the belief system of kind of, you know, one major group of the Albion seed colonists that were truly Puritan. Do, do you have any thoughts on, like, how did Puritanism come to just, pur- just permeate American society God. when it started off as, like, just one subculture? Great question. I don't know. I mean, it, it could be, you know, it could have appealed to settlers in particular, right? Um, I mean, we're talking, again, we have to be clear, we're talking about, it, it permeated sort of white settler culture. Um, you know, it, it has obvious appeal to settlers, right? It's very, very difficult being a settler, um, especially in North America in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, you know, it's like you, you, <laughs> you land on this, in this place that's, first of all, like covered in, forget the Indians for a minute. Just, I always tell my students, just think about what you, so it's like, there you are in mass, what will become Massachusetts. And what you see is just trees and rocks (laughs) and you've got to survive, you know? Um, and there are no tractors. You got to pull everything out of the ground with your hands, basically. I mean, just getting the trees out of there. (laughs) I can't even imagine just so you can establish a farm, um, and agriculture. So God, it's amazing. I mean, so I can imagine the Puritanism because so in other words, that requires tremendous self-discipline without an ideology, you know, before there's an ideology, you must be tremendously self-disciplined just to survive that, just to get through it. Um, and then to prosper, I mean, requires even greater self-discipline. So I think that's part of it. I don't think that's entirely explains it. And that's by the way, also sort of a base superstructure analysis. I just realized, uh, a sort of a Marxist analysis. Um, but, um, you know, as you said, there weren't pure, there were also many settlers, who weren't, who weren't Puritans. And I have a, a section in the book in the first chapter on, uh, or no fourth chapter on, um, uh, Marymount, the, the colony that was hedonistic, that was basically conquered and destroyed by the Puritans. Um, and you know, they love drinking whiskey and dancing around the maypole and inviting in the Indians for these all night parties. 
Um, <clears throat> they may have survived if they were left alone by the Puritans, but we will never know since the since Miles Standish and his militia came and destroyed them. But you know, I do think the Puritanism and, and settlerism is there are consonant makes sense in that way. One thing that's always struck me as kind of a little bit weird is how uh, today a lot of what you would think of as, as sort of the Puritan uh, attitudes towards quote unquote vice are are very prominent among Southerners, especially evangelical Southerners. And that's always struck me as odd because up until, I don't know, the early 20th century, maybe at the latest, the 1920s, it seems like it was the Northeast that was the more evangelical. You know, that's where they had like the burned over district and the second great awakening, like the heart of the second great awakening. And even the first great awakening really was, I think, more of a more of a Northeastern thing than a Southern thing. It seems like at some point the Southerners like took some of the the worst aspects of of Yankee religiosity and just sort of ran with it. Well, you know, there there is uh, words and then there's action, <laughs> right? So I mean, I think right. I think the Southern fire and brimstone preachers are just more hypocritical. I mean, I think that the South is still, and this is what I, I love the South, by the way, and this is, this is probably the reason why. I mean, it's, it is still far less puritanical than the North. Um, and I think that the uh, inflamed rhetoric of Southern clergy is actually um, a response to the relative hedonism of the South. I think that uh, they're sort of compensating for that. Um, we also know, you know, may, there are many, many fire and brimstone preachers in the South who are hardly puritanical. In fact, quite hedonistic, right? Uh, both, both black and white. I mean, I mean, I immediately think of Creflo Dollar, right? Um, <laughs> but he's only one example, right? Many others. So, um, no, I mean, the South is still, still far less puritanical. Um, a much less commitment to the work ethic. I mean, that's cha- you know, it's certainly changing as Northerners move down to the South. But I think most people who live there would agree that it's that there's less of a commitment to the work ethic there. I think the incursion of the military after World War II, the uh, moving bases to the South did change the culture. But I still, I don't know, it still feels to me like a different culture and a better one, and a, you know, less less stringent. Spartan culture than the than the North. Yeah, one of the things I found pretty interesting in Renegade History was like almost at the very end of the book where you um, talk a little bit about hippies, and then you briefly talked about sort of like the outlaw country, you know, of the I guess the '60s and '70s primarily. And uh, what you were just saying that made me think of that, you know, those all, all those those hard drinking, you know, fighting, wild, you know. Uh, good old boys doing no harm and all that. And then a lot of these same people are like, yeah. uh, you know, USA, USA, cops and military, baby. Yeah, I mean, I think there's just sort of a heightened contradiction in the South. Um, and by the way, the country outlaws are based in Bakersfield, California. So it's a little bit, a little, no, little bit off. But yeah, I mean, um, no, but there's still some outlaw, certainly outlaw country in the South as well. And the, and the, even the ones from California certainly have a lot of fans in the South. Well, they're also Okies, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean those the outlaw country guys are all Okie descendants. Um, so yeah, um, yeah, I think you know the the heightened rhetoric just sort of actually almost um, belies what's on you know the, the contradiction that it's that it's there's actually quite a bit of um, 
deviation from puritanical norms. <laughs> and that's, that's exactly why preachers talk that way. So, I don't know. Yeah, interesting. Um, something I wanted to ask you about that I don't know if I've ever heard anybody ask you about, at least in, in any of the podcasts I've heard you on, uh, you know, talk about in, in a lot of depth, is that the, the influence of Michel Foucault mm-hmm. on you. And I have to confess, I'm not that familiar with Foucault. I've read a few things by him, like, way back in graduate school. But honestly, it's been a long time, and I think a lot of it went over my head at the time. Um, I, I'm just curious, what are, like, some of the main insights that you took away from Foucault's work and sort of how it influenced your work? Well, I mean, I guess number one is, and this goes back to the original, or the question about culture, um, you know, for him, all power is discursive. So he's he's directly confronting the Marxist model um, that all power is language, words, gestures. Um, it's all discourse, right? It's not. It's not actually. There's no sort of objective reality that is power. Um, um, that's number one. Uh, he also has, I think, a very very important critique of modern regimes of power, uh, in modern, I guess what you call it really democracy or republicanism. He says that, uh, before the modern age power was what he calls the regime of blood, uh, Kings and slave owners controlled the populace through direct physical coercion through, you know, whippings and beheadings and, placing people in dungeons, et cetera. Um, and that that was only modestly successful, right? That it didn't actually, it wasn't very good at controlling populations. And you can look at the number of kings who lost their heads as evidence of that, right? Um, that, you, that the lesson learned from the pre-modern age was that um, if you simply exert power externally uh, by force, by direct physical coercion, people will generally rebel or not do what you wish them to do. And what happened in the modern age, according to Foucault, and I think he's, I think he's right, uh, is that the new regimes, the sort of democratic regimes in Western Europe and the United States understood that and instituted um, a new form of power, which Foucault calls the regime, uh, the regime of sex. Um, uh, which doesn't mean sex as in <laughs> fornication, but it means regimes of the body, meaning regimes that study the body, that study people's desires, people's habits, people's behaviors, people's need, perceived needs, um, <clears throat> and puts within them or convinces them to manage themselves, Right. So this is democracy. Democracy is people managing themselves. The people rule. That is the definition of democracy. Uh, And what the founding fathers understood uh, was that when people rule rule, they must rule themselves. So uh, democracy is ascetic and puritanical, actually. Uh, To manage anything, anyone who's managed anything, a household or a small company or a small town, anything knows that they must put aside their own individual 
desires and freedoms to do that, right? Um, you, first of all, you gotta you have to understand the thing you're going to manage. You have to spend time studying it, uh, and you you must. That's I mean that's time away from yourself. That's time devoted to the community rather than yourself. So the founding fathers understood this, and that's why they preached Puritanism. Uh, that they hated the fact that Americans were drinking like fish and fornicating in the streets, etc. During in the colonial era. And that's one of the reasons that democracy was actually appealing to them, because they understood that when you when you offered this to people, they tended to be excited about it. You know, we we will rule our we will rule the country ourselves instead of the king. Uh, and then they buy into this self-discipline, this regime of self-discipline. And that I think is one of the reasons that Puritanism became uh, so powerful in the United States was actually because it's that democratic, relatively democratic. So that's the first chapter of, the, of Renegade History. It's an explanation of that. And if you, you know, if you don't believe me, you can just read John Adams. He's very clear about this throughout. He talked quite a bit about how Americans must discipline themselves in order to be a democratic population. Yeah, you've got a lot of great quotes uh, collected from him on that, and also uh, the wonderful Benjamin Rush. Yeah, right. He's a lot of fun. Yeah, <clears throat> Rush. You know, Rush was sort of the first medical. Uh, authority of the United States. Um, and, uh, I think this, the major medical center in Philadelphia is still named after him. Um, but, uh, yeah, he wrote lots of stuff about sex and masturbation and drinking and about how terrible they were and about how, uh, a democratic Republic required a renunciation of them. So he understood it as well. Now, do you know, was was Rush the first guy to make the whole stop masturbating or you go blind argument? Or do, or do you know, did that predate him and he just popularized it? I think he was the first to popularize it in the United States. Oh, okay. I think. Yeah, I don't know of anyone else in the United States who popularized it before him. Uh, but I think it was being talked about in England. Yeah, because whenever I, I share that with my students and um, – I, I made sure there's a there's a copy of your book in in my college's library to refer them to. But <laughs> yeah. when, whenever I bring up the uh, you know Benjamin Rush and his obsessions with people's sexual behavior, when I mention the whole you know he thought masturbation would make you go blind and all that, like the stu- they just die. I mean they're just like losing themselves, cracking up, and you can always see like there's one or two of them that turn bright red. <laughs> Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and they're they're probably the ones that attend the churches that are the most fire and brimstone too. Um, you've said in some different venues uh, that I've heard things to the effect that there's no such thing as ideology free history. Now, that's something that I very much appreciate and agree with. Um, not too long ago, I was looking at my iTunes reviews for my podcast, and they're mostly good. There are a few few bad ones. And it seemed like most of the ones that didn't give me good reviews were basically saying, this podcast has too much ideology in it. <laughs> and and they're like, it should be more, you know, objective and blah, blah, blah. And reading that, I, I just, I, well, I mean, I guess it shouldn't surprise me considering these are, you know, the products of our of our education system. <laughs> but, um, yeah, could, could you just elaborate a little bit more sort of your take on on how the practice of history, like it really can't be? objective, whatever that is, or, or ideology free. <laughs> yeah. I've been sort of laughing at that since my first year in graduate school. Uh, the, what's the great book on this? Peter Novick. Um, do you know this book? 
Um, he's, a no. he's a historian, and he has a, he devoted an entire book to this question: objectivity in the historical profession. And he's a critic of it, you know. Um, and we read it in my first semester of graduate school. Um, it, it sounds like something I probably read in graduate yeah, school. Yeah, um, I'm trying to remember that that noble dream, something like that. Anyway, um, Peter Novick, but um, yeah, it's a fraud. I mean, it's just it's hilarious, and it's <laughs> it's amazes it amazes me that that any professional intellectual believes in it. I mean, I think most most historians, I think, have given up on that idea of objectivity. But um, it became immediately clear to me that those who claim to be objective or claim that objectivity is possible um, are really just endorsing a conservative status quo view of history, right? So when we think about who, who is uh, – when, when sort of your typical American thinks of – you know, objective historians or objective media outlets, you know, who do they think of? They think of the New York Times. They think of Doris Kearns Goodwin. Okay. Are they objective? I mean, I think they are, I bet you anything in a, in a poll, most Americans would place them high on the, <laughs> on the list of objectivity. Um, Doris Kearns Goodwin writes about the great liberal presidents, uh, very positively. Um, so she's clearly a liberal. I mean, the New York Times is less critical of Obama than it would be of, than it was of Bush. Um, you know, they're not fans of Bernie Sanders, but they're also not fans of Ted Cruz. You know, is the middle? Uh, they they sort of try to New York Times sort of places itself kind of in between the left and the right and American politics. Okay. Is that objective? Is, is the truth in the middle? Is the truth exactly halfway between <laughs> the right wing of the Republican party and the left wing of the democratic party? Um, <laughs> you know, are those the only options in the world? Of course not. I mean, there are all sorts of ideologies. There are all sorts of ways of viewing the world. And we happen to, we live in a particular place in a particular time with particular ideologies that are prevalent. What makes them any more true than any other? Uh, so all you're doing is serving the interest of the powers that, that are, you know, that exist currently, right? You're sort of tacitly endorsing the dominant ideologies as being true. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's farcical. I mean, I don't even think about this question very much anymore because it just, it's hilarious to me. Um, and so what I say is just, I, I just want people to be upfront and open about their ideology going in, you know, either in the classroom when they're teaching or when they're writing a book, you know, and I do this all the time with my students. I say, you know, I'm about to tell you my take on this, my position on this. This is, I say this all the time, what I'm about to tell you is not true at all. <laughs> There's nothing true about it. This is just my, my interpretation, right? Um, and then we'll just have it out. And you, you can give me your interpretation and we'll have an argument and an interesting discussion. But the pretense that there is an objective truth out there, it's just, it, um, it, it, it amazes me that anyone who's intelligent and learned holds on to that idea. Yeah, I mean, lots of, of what we think of as you know, true intellectuals have long ago given up on that. But it's amazing how much, just sort, of, just, just sort of to the general public, even 
you know, relatively intelligent and otherwise educated members of the general public are are just they, they really believe in this notion that like there is one true correct version of history. Yeah. yeah. And they're just so far behind. And by the way, speaking of this is another difference I have with libertarians. Not all of them, but a lot I'd say most of them are wedded to this idea of, of objective reality. Um, I think that comes from Ayn Rand's, you know, objectivism, but also they're very, um, I don't know, they're sort of have an old school just belief in this. For, I'm not exactly sure why, but I hear this all the time from libertarians, you know, that there's a truth out there. Yeah, I, I think it may be because many of them come from the right, from the political right. Yeah. I guess so. And, and that, that's an ideology that tends to be more like in, in search of concrete certainty but it's interesting though because it's an it's an enlightenment idea as well right it's both a religious idea and an enlightenment idea and they're tend they tend to be sort of hostile to the enlightenment so i don't know it's very odd i can't figure it out it's just but i hear it all the time you know i'm just interested in the truth <laughs> it's just ridiculous so i don't know what else to say about it yeah yeah i mean my, my take is that i think there is an objective reality but i also don't think we can ever yeah, you know, fully or wholly or or entirely accurately or whatever. Yeah, you know, conceive of it. I, I mean, if I go up to someone on a street and punch them in the head, they're going to feel a punch in the head. Yeah, I don't. Even, I don't you even. Know, agree. Something I don't happened. even agree with that. Uh, meaning, oh, okay. well, because we can interpret that particular thing in infinite ways, right? That the pain, you know, is that is the pain experienced or whatever it is. Would it be experienced in the same way by everyone who experiences a punch in the head? Would they, would they all have the same feeling? Would they all? No, no. I I just meant in the simplistic sense of we could say like this fist contacted this head. Sort yeah, of. Yeah, but thing. we can interpret that in many, many, many ways, right? Sure. Yeah. So I don't even think there's an objective reality. Uh, I think it's just it's just um, a waste of time <laughs> to even discuss it. But but also, I mean, one the quickest way to sort of counter that claim is look at the ways in which truth claims have changed, right? They change constantly, even in science in the hard sciences. How often do scientific truths, how often do they get overturned every single day? Right. I mean, even, even, uh, the theory of gravity has been changing lately. There's this, some big, some big debate within science about they see they've sort of seen something in outer space that's moving in a in a at a speed that it's not supposed to be moving at <laughs> and so they're trying to they're trying to revise the theory of gravity um you know and that's, that's what they've always done uh you know truth claims get changed all the time and this goes for morality as well as epistemology um you know i mean slavery was a good thing a few hundred years ago 99% of the 99.9% .9 of the population believed it was a good thing 200 years ago. Now no one does. Well, who's right? <laughs> and how do we how do you prove that they were wrong and we are right? It's just a preference. We just prefer not to have slavery now. Doesn't mean it's true. I'm not saying it is my preference as well, but it, that's all it is. It's just a preference. How can you prove morality as being objectively true or false? Well, I'm I'm not nearly enough of a philosophy dork to try and do it here. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll just stick to being a history dork. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about about something uh, totally different, sort of sort of switch gears. Um, I, I've heard you say, and I basically think this as well, and, and lots of other people that I sort of follow have said similar things. I've heard you say that that you see um, 
just massive paradigm shifts coming in the relatively near future in higher education. And I'm just curious to hear, because I've heard you say that, and I agree with that, but I'm curious to hear sort of your your speculations, I guess, on on maybe some of the like specific ways that might happen. Well, it's already happening. I mean, it's just a question of how fast it'll happen. But I, 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 I find it very hard to believe that in 10 years, higher education will look essentially the way it does now. Um, so first of all, you know, there's an economic piece that's crucial, which is that the value of a degree um, has declined in the last 20, 30 years. It's just worth less now because everyone has one. Um, and simultaneously, uh, the cost of a degree has gone up tremendously in the last 20 to 30 years, right? So that seems like a bubble that's got to burst. Um, there's that, you know, and then, you know, and so what we've seen in response to that is the growth of for-profit colleges, which I think is just starting, but it's already pretty significant. Um, you see the sort of academic publishing model being subverted constantly. And that's a really great thing, right? And it was, you know, essentially impossible to have anyone read your stuff unless you passed a peer review and made it into an academic journal or into a UC press, I mean, a university press. Um, and now, you know, look what you're doing as we, right now, look what you and I are doing right now. Uh, we're going to be heard by far more people than would read your typical academic book, right? Um, and that goes for blogging and it goes for, you know, all sorts of publications on the web that uh, people are accessing. So we have greater access to, to readers and viewers and listeners than ever before, uh, without going through that process, without going through the peer review process. And that's a great thing. So, you know, and then online education. So we see a huge growth in just recent years in online education, um, there's all kinds of companies with massive online courses, you know, that are doing extremely well and again, reaching millions and millions of people for very little money and educating lots of people sort of kind of doing an end around, around the, um, the higher education system. So I see all that is just continuing and growing and it'll be interesting to see how many colleges I believe, I think there will be many colleges that will fold because of this in the next few years. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure Harvard will still be around in 2020, 2030, but I think it's, it too will have to adapt in many ways and something has to happen. I mean, with the pricing and the value of higher education, it's just got to change. Um, but it is changing. So I hope to be a part of that. (laughs) I think there is a revolution at hand and I hope to be a part of it. Yeah, one of the changes I hope to see is, and I don't know, I have no idea the specifics of how this might come about, but a de-emphasis on sort of formal degrees mm-hmm. and things like that, because it's absolutely ridiculous that if I spend years on my own doing research and, you know, lots of universities, I think Harvard's one of them, uh, televised tons and tons of academic lectures on YouTube, you know, you just watch them for free, might as well be in the class. Right. And if I spend years becoming an expert on some particular topic through that, through those sorts of means, which are totally free and open to the public, 
no, nobody, as far as like employers and people like that, they probably wouldn't take that seriously. If I just said, Hey, I spent eight years on my own intensively studying this. Right. Um, in a lot of cases, they'd be like, well, where's your degree from? And uh, meanwhile, somebody who, who goes through the formal institutional process and gets the magical parchment, they, they're taken seriously, even though they might be a dumbass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I don't know how, how this would happen, but that, that would be one of the things that I would just love to see is this de-emphasis. And in a way, it's, maybe it's more of a throwback to like older times in America, like where lawyers became lawyers by apprenticeship rather than going to law school and that sort of thing. Well, Silicon Valley is full of college dropouts. You know, Mark yeah. Zuckerberg is only one. <laughs> There's many of them. Um, so, you know, I think it's happening already. I think that their employers are hiring people who are just smart and can demonstrate their intelligence. And they know that a degree from X university means far less now than it ever did before. It's so watered down. I mean, the, the college degree is, is what the high school diploma used to be. You know, it, the entire, pretty much the entire middle and upper class has a degree and even much of even many poor people, you know, even much of the working class does too. So it just doesn't mean as much, and it costs so much, costs so much more than ever before, too. So I, it just seems, I think what people are paying for um, mostly is the social experience and the, and the social signaling of the degree. But the, that that degree, that that status, is declining in significance. So really, what they're really paying for is the country club experience, uh, which they're getting at a lot of the, certainly all the elite schools have that, you know, they have really fancy dorms and really nice cafeterias and climbing walls and yoga classes and all that, which is all fine. I just, I don't see that as, I think I just see people realizing that it's not worth the quarter of a million dollars <laughs> that they're going to spend over four years. I, you know, I just, I, it has to, this bubble has to burst because it's clearly a bubble. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Do you think that um, some people might in part be scared off from college by the latest wave of uh, PC militancy? Do you think some, some people will be like, I don't want to go to that if I have to be worried that, you know, I do the wrong thing. I get accused of X, Y, Z, horrible sure. things. Sure. <clears throat> I assume, you know, I don't know. I keep waiting for this to Again, I, it hasn't happened yet, so I could maybe I'm wrong. Maybe people will still be applying to these places in droves and still spending all that money and still going into all that debt. Um, but yeah, I mean, after the last month, you know, I can't imagine it hasn't had some effect on admissions. You know, would you really want to send your kid to this school? Would you want to go to a school like this where asking where are you from could get you reported for a microaggression? Uh, I mean, that's really what's happening. That's what's being called for. And it's already being instituted in some colleges, these microaggression reporting systems, you know, uh, which are basically surveillance of people, you know, and then people getting suspended and expelled for um, having drunken sex. I mean, you know, in my college where I am now, Occidental, this is a pretty well-known case. um, And there's no bones about it. I mean, because the documents are online. Everybody knows this. It's not and all secret or even debated the college itself ruled that these two kids, two freshmen had sex that was consensual, but because they were both drunk <laughs> or because she was drunk, he was drunk too, because she was drunk. It, it violated the sexual misconduct rules and he was expelled. 
he can't go to another college now because it's on his record, even though the, the school ruled that it was consensual sex. You know, so <laughs> I, you know, that, that has to be a deterrent <laughs> to, to many people uh, applying. I would. Yeah, especially consider, considering one of the biggest draws to the college experience was, I mean, getting back to the whole topic of hedonism, sure. one of the big draws of the college experience to, to Americans in real life uh, in the last, you know, 50 or more years is, hey, you, you get drunk, you do drugs, you have crazy wild orgies and who knows what, and and uh, and then you get to go into real life and, and get that Puritan work ethic job going and all that one of the stuff. Worst, and have one of the worst things about this recent wave of protest on campuses is that students have been calling for largely successfully a return to in loco parentis. They've been calling for more controls from the administrations uh, on student life, social life. And uh, I know at Occidental, there are basically no parties at all on campus anymore. They go, the kids go off campus on the weekends. There are no social functions. There's no dances. There's no sort of school sanctioned parties on campus at all. None. And so it's, you know, completely different than when I was in college in the eighties. But, you know, so if the colleges remove that, then really what are they paying for? I don't get it. Yeah. I guess it's just, there's sort of a lag time for enough critical mass of, of uh, people to realize that. And I think part of the problem too, is that a lot of the young people that go to college are just doing it based on, sort of what their parents and guidance counselors and all those people tell them to. And those people are old and they're basing yes. their, their advice on obsolete, obsolete yes, facts. I, I think that's true. Yeah, I'm sure it's true. Um, you know, and that's, I see it in myself, right? Cause I loved college, you know? Um, and so I, I, I kind of realized that I've just sort of, I always assumed that my son would go to college, that it's the best thing that could happen to someone that, you know, it's just going to be a great transformative experience. It's just something he must do. And I think that idea is eroding. I think fewer people believe it. Um, and we see this. I mean, a lot of, there's been a lot of commentary by public intellectuals and others, you know, about this, you know, that it's, that it, that we need to start rethinking that and, uh, that college is not, is not sort of this necessary thing anymore. Yeah. I've got, I've got two children myself and they're, they're both very bright. You know, they both are according to the standards and whatever, like, way better readers than their age would indicate. And already I'm just telling them in conversation, like, Hey, it's cool. If you don't really want to go to college, you know, I'm already kind of doing the opposite of what most parents are doing and just sort of prepping them. Like, unless there's a career you really want and college is absolutely required. It's okay if you don't go. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you want to, so even if you want to be, um, the great, one of the great things is even, even if you want to be an, an, a professional intellectual, right. Until 10 years ago, that was the only way to go pretty much. You had to go to college, you had to go to graduate school. Neither one is necessary to be a professional intellectual anymore. I mean, the number of people with YouTube channels who are doing extremely well, you know, who are just speaking their ideas on YouTube and getting paid for it. I mean, it's incredible. Podcasting, taking off, people making money on podcasting, a lot of people making a living on podcasting, speaking their ideas to the public, you know, um, it's amazing. Uh, you don't even, you don't have to go to college at all for that. You don't even have to go to high school for that. So, you know, it's, the revolution has already begun. What are you working on currently? Any, any books in the works, any other projects, any other, other stuff like that for us to look forward yeah, to? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to finish a book right now, uh, that, which is sort of an extension of the renegade history thesis to, uh, a history of America abroad, 
or America's influence in the world. So I'm focusing primarily on the spread of American popular culture globally since the late 19th century. <laughs> it's a big, big project. Um, but, you know, I begin with the Spanish-American War, and I look at the diffusion of jazz in the Philippines, and then into Asia, <clears throat> and then Hollywood moves in in the 1910s and 20s, and I'm looking at China and Japan and Germany and Russia, and fashion moving into those countries, the phonograph, and not just not just because it's a cool thing that people were dancing to jazz music in the 1920s in Moscow, but that what I see is that American popular culture tends to subvert authoritarian regimes, that authoritarian regimes in those countries uniformly denounce American popular culture and quite rightly see it as a threat to their power. Uh, and you see it being, being very difficult for Islamic fundamentalists and communists and nationalist authoritarians to hold power when people just want to listen to music and dance to it. So pop culture is a, is a much more effective tool to use against uh, oppressive regimes around the world than drones and bombing people's neighborhoods. And yeah, all and it's not even a tool. It's just that we just have to let it happen, right? I mean, it's, it's happening all over the world. And in the Middle East, you know, there's satellite dishes on every apartment building in the Middle East. And people are streaming in American sitcoms and American pornography and music videos. And the mullahs are going crazy. They hate it. They're issuing fatwas every day against... Britney Spears and Mickey Mouse and Jennifer Aniston um, because they understand that it's taking people away from a devotion to the faith and to Sharia law. So um, the revolution's happening again in the Middle East all the time. Do you think it's uh, that that our quote unquote our not that not that either of us really believe this uh, government might actually make things worse by continuing to. To drive, like they might drive more people away from uh, South Park and other fun aspects of American pop culture and drive them towards crazy fundamentalism yeah, by, I mean, by droning people yeah, exactly. all the time and all that sure. crazy I mean, stuff. I mean, we have we've seen this. We know this is true. I mean, bombing bombing Yemen just ca has caused people to join ISIS. <laughs> we know this. I mean, there's yeah. lots of commentary, lots of lots of observations of this on the ground in Yemen and elsewhere. Um, so there's no doubt that um, Britney Spears will do a lot more to subvert Islamic fundamentalism than any second airborne ever would. There you go. That figure. I'll, I'll see if I can maybe make a shortened version of that statement and make it the title okay. of the show or something <laughs> like that. For Britney Spears defeating the jihadists. All right. Well, uh, Thad, I appreciate your time very much. Uh, it was great talking to you. I think this will be a cool episode, and um, I look forward to to that book. Excellent. About. Thanks for having me on. All right, I want to thank Thad one more time for coming on the show. And in the show notes for this episode, I'm going to link to his website, as well as to a recent episode of the School Sucks Project that I heard um, just within the past week or so, where he was talking about race issues in the current ultra-PC climate on college campuses with Brett Vinod. It was a show I found very interesting, so if you want to hear more of Thad's uh, thoughts on that, check that out. The Amazon affiliate links for this episode will, of course, include Dad's books, as well as some other books related to things that we talked about, so I hope you'll check those out. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Make sure to check out my website, profcj.org, that's profcj.org, to find the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. 
While there, you can also email subscribe to the website over on the right-hand side. You'll see a place to enter your email address, and if you sign up there, you'll simply get an email alert every time I post something new to my website. I promise you won't get any junk or spam or anything like that from me. For any correspondence, please feel free to email me at the email address profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with and follow me and the show on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the podcast in a variety of ways, including iTunes and Stitcher. If you like the show, there are multiple ways you can help it out. One simply is to spread the word about it any way you have available to you, whether social media, online discussion postings, word of mouth, or whatever, to people that you think might like the show. Also, please consider leaving a review or a rating in venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. There are also multiple ways you can help out the show financially. One is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-r-o-f-c-j. And sign up to support the show on a per-episode basis. If you do that for any amount, I will thank you by name in the next episode that I record. And if you've signed up for at least a dollar per episode, you'll have access to special monthly bonus episodes via Patreon that are available no place else. You can also visit profcj.org slash donate to donate to the show via PayPal or Bitcoin. And you can also help the show out financially by doing your Amazon shopping after first going through any of the affiliate links found on my website. And if you do that, I will get a small commission from Amazon at no cost to you. So thanks again for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. Thanks to State Farm for supporting this show and helping our listeners protect their businesses and lives. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.